The Long and Winding Road, What You Can Expect from the Probate Process, on the next On Air with Myrick O'Connell, right now. Welcome to the latest episode of On Air with Myra O'Connell's Trusts and Estates series. I'm Howard Kaplan. Today we're talking about probate. When a person dies, their assets pass to their beneficiaries, often through a court process known as probate. The process can sometimes be avoided with a well-prepared estate plan, but there are times it is unavoidable, so it's best to be prepared. Joining us today to tell us what to expect from the probate process is Myrick O'Connell attorney Liz Newton. Liz, welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Thanks for coming back. Hi, Howard. Nice to be back. Excellent. Thanks. So the first question would be, Liz, what exactly is probate? Um, it's a good question. <laughs> um, well, probate's a court-supervised process um, that kind of has two goals. One is getting creditors of the estate paid. Um, and two, ultimately transferring whatever remains of the assets to the beneficiaries of the estate. And so there's kind of a, a dual process of identifying whether there's a will. Um, and in fact, what is the decedent's last will and testament? Because obviously there could be several out there. Mm-hmm. And um, getting a, what's called a personal representative appointed. So that role used to be called an executor um, in Massachusetts about 11 years ago. That terminology changed. Um, so now everyone's called a personal representative. And that's the, the person who's in charge of running the whole probate process. They are the person empowered to act on behalf of the estate in terms of paying those creditors and ultimately distributing the assets to the, to the beneficiaries. Right. So, Liz, before we dive more deeply into the probate process, how can people avoid probate? So I always talk to clients about what probate means in terms of what does not pass through probate. And so there's three categories of assets that avoid the probate process. And those are the assets that already know where they're supposed to go upon death. Um, So the first of those examples is um, assets that are held jointly with another person with rights of survivorship. So oftentimes um, a house between husband and wife is owned um, as joint tenants with rights of survivorship or tenancy and co- or tenants by the entirety in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a different version of joint tenancy with rights of survivorship. Mm-hmm. And what that means is just by operation of law on the death of the first owner, the 100% of the ownership passes to the surviving joint owner or owners if there's more than one. Um, so that's one category that avoids probate. Um, the second are any assets that have beneficiary designations. The most common examples of these are life insurance or retirement assets. They allow you to name the person who inherits that asset upon death. And so because that asset tells us where it's supposed to go on upon death to the named beneficiary, it avoids the probate process. Right. And then the third category are assets that are titled into the name of a trust during one's lifetime. Um, so that means actually changing the title. If it's real estate, it's changing the title for example, from Elizabeth Newton to the Elizabeth Newton Trust, whereas the trust then becomes the the legal owner of the property. Or a bank account would be titled, instead of um, in Elizabeth Newton's name, it would be titled in the name of Elizabeth, the Elizabeth Newton Trust. Um, So the trust then becomes the governing document about what happens to that asset upon death. And and, 
uh, you know, any trust would, would have those terms built in about what happens to the asset upon death. So anything that doesn't fall into one of those three categories is then a probate asset. In other words, it's any asset that is in someone's individual name at death that doesn't have a joint owner and doesn't allow for, or doesn't have a beneficiary named. Um, so we kind of have to know where that asset goes and the probate process sorts that all out about who's due that asset. Makes sense, makes sense. So Liz, how does one begin the probate process? To begin, there's a slew of documents that the probate court um, requires to be filed to start the process. And those can be found, you know, if you Google Massachusetts um, probate court forms, I'm sure you can, can find that. And the, the purpose of the forms is essentially to identify who is petitioning to represent the estate, so to be appointed personal representative. Um, if the decedent has a will, it tells the court what will they're trying to probate. Um, and it identifies any interested parties in the estate. And so that's kind of two categories. Um, the first is who, if the person didn't have a will, who is entitled to the property under the laws of intestacy? And what the laws of intestacy are, it's, it's a statute that the, the state has put out that says if someone doesn't have a will, this is how their, their estate will be distributed. And it essentially kind of goes up and down the family tree. So if you have children, it would go to children. If any child is deceased, it would go to their own children or your grandchildren and kind of down that lineal descendant line. If you don't have any descendants, it goes up to your parents or if there aren't parents, grandparents. Um, and then to siblings and nieces and nephews. And so kind of you hear this, the story of I inherited a million dollars from my long lost uncle. That's it probably happened through the laws of intestacy where someone is the, the next closest living relative of someone who died without a will. Hmm. Um, so we have to tell the court who, if there wasn't a will for whatever, even if there is a will, you have to let the court know who would inherit if there wasn't a will in case a will is challenged and is thrown out or if there isn't a will. So you have to let the court know who, who would be entitled to the estate under the, the laws of intestacy. And then if there is a will, you also have to let the court know who is entitled to inherit under the terms of the will. And those collectively are kind of known as the interested parties. Um, most of the time, it's the same people, you know, spouse and children. Right, um, right. But so you fill out all these forms, you let the court know what will you'll be probating or that you're not probating a will, who are the interested parties and who is, is being asked to serve as that personal representative. So you submit all of those forms to the court um, with the original will, if there is a will, and a certified debt certificate. And so the court then um, kind of goes through its process of validating um, the will and, and identifying if there's any contests to the will or the person who's asking to serve as personal representative. So Liz, what are the three avenues to pursuing probate? Right. So just to build off my last answer kind of the, of the court going through its process of validating all these issues. There's three ways that you can um, file for probate. One is called a voluntary administration. And this is 
I don't want to say the easiest because it's never really easy to deal with the probate court, but it's the, the least um, oversight by the probate court, so to speak. And it's only available in limited estates. So essentially, if someone's estate is probate estate, I should say, and again, remember, that's only the assets that are that don't otherwise know where they're supposed to go upon death. Right. Um, so if those probate assets are worth $25,000 or less, not including um, a vehicle, so you could have a $25,000 bank account and a car, you, you could still go through the voluntary administration process. Mm -hmm. And I should mention that real estate cannot be included in a voluntary administration. So that's kind of the, the easiest way to get through probate. You know, the court doesn't really have much say to deny a voluntary administration statement when it's submitted to the court. The second and more common is probably it's called an informal probate. Informal and formal are kind of the most common, I should say. Mm -hmm. And informal, the difference is really when notice is given to all of those interested parties and creditors. So an informal process is, is usually used when a family gets along and there aren't really going to be any issues or anticipated issues, I should say. Um, and what that is, is it gives all of those interested parties that I mentioned earlier, seven days notice to say, we're going to file this will with the probate court. Um, and if you have any objections, you know, you're, you can come forward now. And so the court, again, doesn't really have, as long as you submit all of the proper forms, um, you submit the original will and the death certificate. Again, the court doesn't have much say in denying the approval of the will and the and the personal appointment of the personal representative. And once the personal representative is appointed in an informal probate, then they have to publish um, notice in the newspaper. And that kind of puts the world on notice to say an informal probate has been started. Um, you know, let's say Elizabeth Newton has been appointed personal representative of the estate. And it invites anyone if they have a later will or, you know, they have issues with the personal representative to come forward at that time and kind of contest it. A formal probate, on the other hand, is just like it sounds, much more formal. It has much more court oversight, and the court really takes pains to make sure that, yes, this is in fact the last will and testament. No one is going to contest the personal representative's appointment before everything has been allowed with the probate court. So what happens in a formal probate is you submit all of the paperwork that I mentioned earlier, proving um, the, the devisees, the beneficiaries under the will, mm -hmm. the all the interested parties, um, mm -hmm. and you get what's called a citation from the court before anyone is appointed personal representative, before the will is formally allowed to the court. They issue this citation, which then is published in the newspaper. Um, and that puts everyone, the world, creditors, anyone contesting the will, anyone contesting the appointment of the personal representative, that puts them all on notice and gives them 30 days to come forward and file a formal objection. And if they don't come forward and file that formal objection, then the court says, well, they had their chance, they didn't come forward, so we're going to go forward and allow this will and deem it the last will and testament and formally deem all of the heirs um, at law of the estate and all the beneficiaries named under the will. Sure. So kind of once the court issues its its decree in the formal probate, that's kind of the end, end word, so to speak. So you can't really challenge it. 
once that happens. So oftentimes if there's real estate, um, because title companies kind of want that formal determination of heirs, or if there's a family that might be fighting about the estate, we often do a formal just to get that um, a formal decree from the court saying, you know, who these are the interested parties going forward and no one else can really contest past that. Sure. So Liz, what happens once the court appoints the personal representative? They have several duties. Um, first is to inventory all of the probate assets. So they have to gather a list of all the assets that are going to go through probate. They have to ascertain the value of those assets as of date of death and kind of keep track of those assets after date of death, you know, if they've earned interest or dividends or anything like that. They have to pay all taxes, uh, in, you know, the, the decedent's final personal income tax return. If the estate earns income, um, the estate may owe, owe an income tax return. Um, if there's if the estate rises to the level of needing an estate tax return, it's their responsibility to file that within nine months of date of death. And then any debts and expenses of the estate. So, you know, maybe their last credit card bill or paying legal fees or paying the probate filing fees and any other expenses that come up in the, in the general administration of the estate. And then finally, to distribute whatever's left of the estate uh, according to either the terms of the will or in the terms of the intestate laws. So as we move along in this process uh, called probate, is it necessary to close the estate at the end of the probate process? I'd like to think of probate kind of in three steps. Um, the first is opening the probate estate, which we talked about at length, which you can do through the voluntary administration, the informal or the formal process. The second step is inventorying the estate and kind of gathering what the assets need to be distributed. And then the third step is to distribute the assets and decide if the personal representative wants to close the estate. And there's pros and cons to doing this. You, you are not no longer required to close the probate estate with the probate court, um, but it is usually recommended. And the reason for that is the personal representative, if they distribute assets and let's say a creditor comes forward or another beneficiary that says they were owed money and it, it ends up that they have found that they were owed money. The personal representative has already distributed all the assets at that point. So the personal representative then becomes personally liable mm -hmm. to that beneficiary or mm -hmm. that creditor to pay whatever's owed to them. Mm. I wouldn't say that's a common scenario, but it's possible. So by choosing one of the closing options, it kind of limits or cuts off completely the personal representative's liability. Um, so if you do nothing, the personal representative's liability is kind of always potentially out there. But if you do kind of an informal closing statement, you whatever you submit to the court, it's kind of an informal accounting of the estate activity. So what money has come in, what has been paid out. And once that informal document is filed with the court, after one year, the personal representative can only be liable 
for um, reasons of fraud or manifest error. So that's a pretty high standard. So right. it severely limits um, their their ability to be sued. And then again, where when you're opening the estate, there's kind of three options. When you're closing the estate, there's three options too. And the last is again the more formal path. But what that can comprises of is what's called a first and final account. So it's a much more formal accounting of the estate activity of what has come into the account. You know, in, that's why you have to keep track of that interest and dividends and maybe refunds that the estate received. Or if you sold real estate, you have to report that. And then you report all the expenses that were paid out of the estate, such that at the end of the day, you show the court that all of the money that came into the estate has been paid out in one way or another such that there's no money left. And you ask the court to allow this accounting and the court issues at the end of the day what's called a decree and order of complete settlement. Mm -hmm. And from the day that the court issues that decree and order, the personal representative's liability is cut off completely. So that obviously takes longer time and more fees to do, but a lot of personal representatives, especially in contentious estates, want that peace of mind that, that their liability has been cut off and no one else can come after them. Oh, for sure. I can imagine that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, I mean, because a personal representative, uh, I have been one and uh, I would not have wanted uh, personal liability. <laughs> right. Always right. hanging over your head. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, kind of an umbrella question here. How long overall does a general probate process take? It has to take at least one year. And that's because creditors in Massachusetts have one year to come forward to file a claim against the estate. So it might not be that the probate estate is active the entire year, but you're, you're not allowed to formally close it with the court until at least a year has passed. So um, that's kind of the first thing I always say in terms of how long probate is going to take. But then it also depends on the complexity of the estate. You know, is it one bank account? That's going to be much easier than there's six properties and brokerage accounts and 401ks and 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 whatnot. So, um, it kind of depends on what's in the probate estate, um, how well the beneficiaries get along. If everyone's kind of on the same page and will sign off on things, it's going to make it much easier than if beneficiaries are fighting and they're always kind of going back and forth and and you're trying to protect the estate, so to speak. And it also depends on what, believe it or not, the county that the person dies in. Hmm. So there's certain counties in Massachusetts that are just completely overloaded hmm. um, when it comes to administering these estates, these probate estates. You know, Middlesex and Suffolk come to mind. I mean, rightfully so. That's where the most amount of people in Massachusetts live. Right. And they're just completely overwhelmed. And and so that obviously slows things things up because sometimes there are emergencies that, that kind of push cases to the top of the list. So I tell clients when we file for initial probate that it could take one month to get appointed as a personal representative. It could take six months. Hmm. It all depends on how quickly the probate court moves. Sure. <laughs> sure. So is the probate process expensive? There's definitely fees and expenses involved in it. Um, even if you don't use an attorney, you know, there's filing fees for the probate forms um, at the court. There's yeah. filing fees to close the probate estate. If you use an attorney, there are attorney's fees 
you know, CPA fees to file those income uh, tax returns or estate tax returns. And then, you know, just general fees to clean out someone's house and, and put that on the market. So, you know, it depends on the estate, obviously, the larger the estate, probably the more expenses there will be. But you can try to minimize them as, as much as possible. We, I always tell clients, you know, the more legwork they're willing to do, getting bank statements and date of death values, and, you know, that's less work that we have to do. So that obviously minimizes the expenses, but there's certain expenses you can't avoid, unfortunately. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. Now, do you need an attorney to go through probate, uh, speaking of attorney's fees? You don't. All of the forms are available online. Again, I think if you just Googled Massachusetts probate forms, you can find the, there's a Massachusetts.gov uh, website that has them. There are quirks with every court proceeding and every probate court has its own quirks. So I will say that hiring an attorney probably just makes it a little, go a little smoother. Um, for example, I have a client that tried to do it on her own and the court kicked back her documents saying, you know, she didn't fill out most of them correctly. And so she just came to me and said, please help, please just sort this out. So <laughs> right. it might save you headaches in the long run. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. So Liz, what are some things that people may be surprised to learn about the probate process? The first is how long the entire process takes. Most people, when I tell people that they may not be getting a distribution until a year from date of death, they they scoff. <laughs> hmm. But to protect the personal representative, I mean, you you never know. Even if, if even if kids who have been taking care of their parents and their, know their finances are pretty confident that there aren't any creditors out there, you just never know. On on day three hundred and sixty four, some large creditor could come forward and place a claim for fifty thousand dollars against the estate. So I always advise personal representatives that yes, you you may be able to make partial distributions before the year, but you should always leave a pretty substantial reserve in the estate until that year has passed in order to cover any any potential estate um, expenses. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is how long it takes to get a personal representative appointed. And like I said, that's just usually determinative by the court that you're in, unfortunately. So so there's just a lot of waiting in the probate process. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's understandable. And I think a lot of our listeners are probably going to nod their head in agreement on that. Any <laughs> other the ones that have yeah. been through it, yes. Oh, yes, for sure. Any other considerations, Liz? So I would just say that no two estates are alike. Um, oftentimes I'll hear clients come in and say, you know, their cousin's estate went through and easy peasy and no issues and they don't understand why it's taking so long. And oftentimes it's just apples and oranges. You can't compare the two. There might be complexity with assets. There might be trouble selling real estate. There might be just familial relationships that are complicating the process. So, you know, even though you might have heard it might have been easy for someone else and you don't understand why it's taking so long, it's just, it really is fact specific in every case. And another thing to consider is that everyone kind of talks about avoiding probate and why it might be makes sense for some people. Going through the probate process actually makes sense for certain types of estate planning. So I think you're talking to attorney Bergeron, you either have or you will in the future, about um, Medicaid planning. 
And there's actually a strategy for Medicaid planning that embraces the probate process and funds what's called a testamentary trust. And the only way to do that is to go through the probate process. But the end result is that anything that ends up in the testamentary trust is preserved for the surviving beneficiary. And those assets that are held in testamentary trusts are not countable towards Medicaid if that person, if that beneficiary were to apply for Medicaid in the future. So there is a lot of talk about trying to avoid the probate process, but in some cases it actually makes sense. So, you know, you kind of have to weigh your pros and cons and what your goals are in your state planning process and whether probate makes sense for you. Very helpful advice. We've been talking with Myrick O'Connell, Trust and Estates Attorney Liz Newton on navigating the probate process. And uh, Liz, thank you so much for showing us the process pretty much from beginning to conclusion with a lot of little uh, twists and turns in the middle that some people you know, may not know. And I hope our listeners uh, were able to uh, gain some useful information from our discussion. Liz, if uh, folks have questions about the probate process or other issues involving trusts and estates, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. They can um, always look on the Myrick O'Connell website, or you can email me at enewton at myrickoconnell.com, or give me a call at 508-929-1650. Thanks so much. Liz Newton, Trust and Estates Attorney with Myrick O'Connell. Appreciate your joining us on On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Thanks for having me, Howard. I'm Howard Kaplan. Be well, stay safe. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. 